Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. In this series, we will be discussing the ins and outs of one of the most dynamic, violent, and understudied dynasties ever to rule in history. The Merovingians were more than just a stopgap between the fall of Rome and the beginning of the Middle Ages. They were, in fact, a crucial piece in the evolution of Europe. This series will explain their importance while indulging in some of the fascinating details about the wild and dramatic years of the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. Before we get to them, however, we must first ask a simple question. Where did Rome go? This is a fair question, especially to those living at the time. After all, the Roman Empire had been the only major power in Europe and the Mediterranean since it destroyed the Carthaginians and the Hellenic kingdoms in the last two centuries BC. Its decline and fall in the West ended hundreds of years of consistency, sending Western Europe into a spiral of chaos and rebirth. Understanding the Romans, and the impact of their collapse, is key to understanding the late antique period in which the Merovingians ruled. Rewinding all the way back to the last century BC, eventually the Roman war machine rolled over everyone and there was no one left to conquer. Once that had occurred, they mostly turned this aggression inwards as ambitious generals and statesmen fought for ascendancy. The chaos of this period ended after a series of civil wars that saw Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, become the first emperor of Rome. This episode will focus on Rome, its character, its importance moving forward in our story, and its decline in Gaul, the region that the Merovingians would come to rule. It is with Julius Caesar that our story begins. In his day, France as we know it was called Gaul, home to the Gallic tribes. The Romans and the Gauls had a difficult history. The last sack of the city of Rome was in 490 BC and was perpetrated by Gallic warriors. After this traumatic experience, the Romans held a special hatred for the barbarians. They eventually conquered the northern part of Italy, which at the time was populated by Gauls, but the vast majority of the Gallic menace still lay across the Alps. Caesar finally excised this demon with his conquest of the entirety of Gaul between 58 and 50 BC. After this, Gaul faced a series of revolts, invasions, and civil wars over the centuries of Roman rule, but was never really drawn away from Roman control for any significant period. In Gaul, as in much of the empire, the Romans operated with a carrot-and-stick approach. On the one hand, the ruthlessly effective legions were always a threat, ready to march in, crush your armies, and devastate your lands if given half a chance. Really, they were one of the most effective sticks in world history. On the other hand, though, the Romans offered several enticing carrots of sparkling Roman culture, wealth, and influence for conquered elites. Roman living was comparatively soft and luxurious. Religious syncretism encouraged association between native beliefs and Roman gods, and local elites were slowly given more and more power in the increasingly cosmopolitan empire. Several Roman emperors would eventually have Gallic blood, a sign of just how closely integrated Gaul became. Roman cultural influence also encouraged Romanization, where population slowly acted and became more Roman in character. By the 5th century AD, where our story will really begin, the Gauls had effectively melded into the Roman state. It is important to note here the enduring legacy of Rome. It looms large in our histories, our political systems often claim inspiration from the Republic, and many European societies see Rome as a distant ancestor. Unfortunately, I am here to dispel any thoughts that the Romans were just like us. As we go forward to talk about the transition between Rome and the medieval societies we know and love, 
It is important to note just how strange Roman, especially classical Roman, society really was. 2,000 years ago is a very long time, and in that time, many things have changed. If you met a normal Roman today, ignoring the language barrier, it would be much more like meeting an alien than meeting a long-lost brother. Romans had a strange, traditional way of thinking that would make relating to them rather difficult. A key example of this is the concept of mos maiorum. Loosely translated as the way of the ancestors, it was a sort of collection of unwritten rules in Roman society that included a very strange practice. In the words of the Roman historian Suetonius, all new that is done contrary to the usage and customs of our ancestors seems not to be right. In ancient Rome, every new idea or solution to a problem had to be phrased as a return to a previous way of doing things. Imagine you won an election in the modern day, but instead of giving speeches about your ideas and solutions, you instead had to explain, every time, that you didn't think of this, but one of your ancestors did. You are not suggesting something new, by Jupiter no, you are simply suggesting that we return to an older way of doing things, but from back when things were good, before we all got corrupt and decadent and forgot our morals. This way of thinking seems rather silly to us, especially when you consider politicians suggesting solutions for vast imperial issues, using examples of a time when Rome controlled little more than the surrounding countryside of their city. It is basically the equivalent of Joe Biden announcing that the new American welfare system will be modelled off the settlers of Jamestown, who really had it right all along, and it's our fault for changing things. Part and parcel of the system is also the wholehearted embrace of hierarchical systems that dictated every aspect of life. Ideas like the paterfamilias, a father of a household having absolute authority over their family, rub against the grain of our modern sensibilities. Similarly, the patron-client relationship is strange, yet crucial to Roman society. The idea of a fully grown man acknowledging another man as higher status, and promising to vote, fight, and generally support him in exchange for financial and social assistance is odd. It is even more odd when one remembers that the man you just promised to serve also has dozens, maybe hundreds of other men promising to serve him as well. This system of interlocking relationships helped keep Roman society together, but is almost completely alien to our ideas of proud self-sufficiency. Many of these hierarchical and restrictive norms tack directly against our modern preferences. The reason I'm starting this series not with the Merovingians, but a look at Roman society, is to underline a major point that will crop up again and again. These examples are illustrative of the cultural heritage that bound Roman society together. The empire would grow and change, but this context would not be forgotten. Later in the empire, dramatic shifts towards military autocracy and the adoption of Christianity would change the face of Rome, but its guts remain the same. To put it simply, Rome is not like us. But, in the medieval kingdoms of the West, we can see the origins of the modern European nation-states. Understanding the transition between the two offers the potential for answers about the origins of our societies, as well as a fascinating look into what happens when a society that has existed for hundreds of years suddenly collapses. Not everything the Romans built would disappear, though. While a shared cultural past would dissipate, the Merovingians and other successor states would adopt important aspects of Roman rule, mostly those that enriched them and kept them in power. The large, centralised bureaucracy of Roman rule wouldn't continue, but its products, mostly the ever-important tax records, 
would be relied upon heavily. The Merovingians, again like most successor states, weren't anywhere near as good at administration as the Romans, so they effectively cannibalized the essential parts of the system, and just ignored the rest. Public works and circuses may not have been on the menu, but every government needs revenue. The Romans also left behind some enduring political influence. Throughout the Merovingian period, the surviving Eastern Roman Empire, sometimes called the Byzantine Empire, will pop in semi-regularly. The Merovingian kingdoms were the furthest away from the surviving half of the empire, with the Goths and Vandals having much more direct contact. But the Romans will still come in and out of our story, periodically lending their prestige through titles and wielding their influence to push politics in the Merovingian courts one way or the other. On top of this are the remaining Gallo-Roman families, who may have new Frankish overlords, but who still controlled a lot of land and wealth, not to mention the Gallic church. The conquest of Clovis would see his Frankish people, and his Merovingian family, rule in Gaul, but they did not replace the people there before, there were simply not enough of them. The Gallo-Roman aristocracy would remain an important part of the kingdoms for years, and they effectively wielded their connection to Rome, often even highlighting their family's senatorial status. In a court still very aware of Roman influence and excellence, this was a great advantage. Roman ideas of rulership, images, and traditions were also still important. When Clovis is described by the historian Gregory of Tours, he is compared to the great Roman Emperor Constantine. When Chilperic, another Merovingian king with whom we will become acquainted, tries to show his magnificence, he embarks upon a building program and tries to tinker with the Latin language, modelling himself after famous emperors like Hadrian or Marcus Aurelius. The close relationship the Merovingians would form with the church is also often couched in Roman terms, as the bias for later Christian emperors comes to the fore in the deeply Christian sources of the time. These trends will build in the Merovingian period, and come to fruition in their successors, the Carolingians, who would wage wars of conversion and have their greatest king, Charlemagne, eventually crowned emperor. There is significant evidence that the stunning success of the Franks convinced them that they were the successors to the Romans. Eventually, they would act on these ideas to build their own empire. While Roman political, social, and cultural influence remained, the empire itself was most certainly gone. The decline of Rome in the West was a long, slow process, and, unfortunately, a fiendishly complicated and controversial topic. Luckily for us, though, we can largely ignore the developments outside of Gaul, and focus entirely on that valuable region that the Merovingians would eventually seize for themselves. With this exploration of the last years, however, a sense of the growing chaos and instability Rome faced in the West should become clear. We will start with a man named Flavius Stilicho. Stilicho was an imperial general of half-Roman, half-barbarian descent. He served Theodosius the Great, the last Roman emperor to rule over the entire empire. After the death of Theodosius, Stilicho was tasked with protecting Theodosius' son, Honorius, a far inferior man to his father. Stilicho would rule the western half of the empire in all but name for years, as the real power behind the throne. This situation of barbarian or semi-barbarian generals asserting their influence over the emperor would be commonplace in both the west and east in this period. While the east would survive this period of barbarian military influence, the west would not. 
During his period of control, Stilicho would see off two major invasions of Italy. First in 401 AD, against the Goths under Alaric, and then again in 405, against a coalition led by a king called Radagasius. These campaigns put huge stress on the already weak manpower of the army, and Stilicho was forced to strip forces from the Rhine River that had served as the buffer between the Germanic barbarians and the Gallic provinces since the time of Julius Caesar. Taking advantage of this, a coalition of tribes crossed the Rhine in 406, using the winter freeze to make easy passage over the river. These tribes were not just here to raid, they wanted pieces of Roman territory for themselves. They burst into the rich heartland of Gaul, and proved incredibly difficult to dislodge. Soon after this failure, Stilicho fell from grace and was executed, but the tribes were never effectively dealt with. The dam was, in essence, broken. Chaos followed after Stilicho's death, and the barbarians proved they were here to stay. Alaric's Visigoths moved into Italy, and without Stilicho to stop them, they sacked Rome itself in 410. This was the first sack of the Eternal City by a foreign army since the Gauls in 490 BC, a traumatic end to an impressive 900-year record. This sack would shake the foundation of Roman rule, but the Visigoths themselves would move west and settle in the south of Gaul. Alongside them, other barbarian groups began settling in Gaul, and some even slipped over the Pyrenees and into Hispania. Eventually, another great Roman general would seize power and temporarily stop this decline. Flavius Aetius dominated the Western Empire between 433 AD and 454, largely ignoring the imperial court and acting on his own accord, just like Stilicho had done before him. Sometimes called the last of the Romans, and celebrated by historians like Edward Gibbon, Aetius is best known for his defeat of Attila the Hun during the fearsome king's invasion of Gaul. To do this, however, Aetius had to team up with the various barbarian groups that he had been fighting to subdue, including his arch-rivals, the Visigoths. In Aetius, we see a shift in the reality of Gaul. While Stilicho may have been happy to use barbarian troops to fill his army, he wanted Roman territory to stay mostly intact. Aetius, on the other hand, accepted the reality of barbarian tribes settling in Roman territory, and mostly just sought to keep them loyal and subservient to Roman interests. He had successes in this, but they would mostly not survive his assassination at the hands of his jealous emperor. Next on the list is the last Western Roman emperor to attempt a serious reconquest of lost territories. Again, after the death of Aetius, there was further political chaos. A Gallo-Roman aristocrat named Avitus was eventually proclaimed emperor with the support of the Visigoths and the two major generals of the time, the barbarian Ricimer, and the Roman Majorian. Avitus, never popular with the Italian aristocracy, and despised by the Eastern court as a barbarian puppet, was soon deposed, and Majorian, as the only really viable candidate, replaced him in 457. Majorian, as one of the military elite, revived the old idea of the emperor as an active general, he campaigned effectively in Gaul and Hispania against barbarian tribes, pushing them back and re-establishing Roman influence outside of Italy. His successes were short-lived, however, as he was murdered in 461 by his colleague Ricimer before his successes could be consolidated. 
Both had served under Aetius, and Brickhammer had seen Majorian's rise to the Imperial Purple as an opportunity for himself to attain the same kind of power that Aetius had once wielded. Stifled by Majorian's personal success and effective rule, Rickimer killed him and appointed a puppet to the throne that he could control. Thus ended the last hope for a revival of imperial power in the West. After Majorian, there was a succession of short-lived emperors who struggled to keep their heads above water, as the myriad of barbarian, Italian, Gallic, and Eastern factions vied to put their candidate on the throne, and the empire was reduced to little more than its Italian heartland. When the final Roman emperor in the west was deposed in 476, there was little left of the empire to seize. But, amidst this chaos, in the northern part of Gaul, centred on the city of Soissons, there was a man keeping the name of Rome alive. His name was Aegidius. Having fought for both Aetius and Majorian, he rebelled when Ricimer killed Majorian, and formed a territory sometimes known as the Kingdom of Soissons. It is important to note that while some of his barbarian contemporaries may have called him King of the Romans, he was in reality little more than a warlord. While he threatened many times to come south and unseat Ricimer and his procession of puppet emperors, he either couldn't or chose to preserve his strength. Instead, he launched successful campaigns against the Visigoths to the south and the Burgundians in the east, carving out a significant state and establishing himself as a major power in Gaul. He died in 465, either of assassination or natural causes, depending on who you believe. His son, Syagrius, inherited his lands and position, and would keep the kingdom alive past the fall of Rome. He would not last long, however, as he would eventually meet an oncoming Merovingian storm named Clovis. But more on that later. With the slow collapse of Rome in the west, and the last vestige of Roman power in Gaul desperately clinging to life, we may ask ourselves, what was really left to conquer? With the light of Rome extinguished in the west, constant warfare devastating the landscape, and the Roman administration lying in ruins, it may seem like a bleak inheritance for the new barbarian rulers. This may be somewhat true, but in reality, Gaul remained a major prize. There were rich, urban centres to loot and tax, a vast countryside to claim, lucrative trade routes to exploit, and many people over which to rule. And amongst all of this was a dearth of central authority. A power vacuum had developed, and it would not be long before someone would fill it. It would not be the storied and feared Visigoths, nor the powerful Burgundians, nor even the remains of the Romans. It would be an unknown king from the faraway lands to the north, right on the edge of civilization. His people, the Franks, had played a minor role in the events we have discussed this week, but he would thrust them quickly and unexpectedly into the spotlight, then leave his descendants to figure out what to do with it. Next week we will take a break from these political and military developments and finally talk about the Merovingians themselves. Who were they? And were they really important and interesting enough to merit an entire podcast? I promise the answer is yes, but we'll soon find out together. See you then.